You can turn this morning to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. I'm shocked that you don't know that old English melody as it's called to Bunyan's well-known words. I'm sure it's known to some of you and to those of you that it was new. Well, there's some things we need to get acquainted with and that's good for us. Hobgoblin or foul fiend. This has the, the mark of Bunyan all over it, doesn't it? Of course, those who are preparing for the VBS are becoming, if they have not already, well acquainted with all things Bunyan, at least in relation to the Holy War. Looking forward to that. But we're here in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. Last Lord's Day morning we looked at verse 13 on its own. We come to verse 14, 15 and 16 which we will read together just now. Let us hear the Word of God as it is in these three verses. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, writes, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. They both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Amen. Let us still our hearts momentarily in prayer. Seek the Lord. Call upon His name. Lord, we do seek Thee, thankful for the, the standing of each believer as a pilgrim laboring to fight the Lord's battle here upon the earth. We are part of the church militant, and we have no, there's no clause to escape that standing. We pray that we might embrace it and live it out for the glory of Thy name, presenting Christ in a world that is hostile to him and to his gospel. As we come to thy word, we pray, make it to be the blessing that it was intended to be, instructive, edifying, encouraging, challenging, whatever the need is. We pray that thy sheep will be fed, instructed, built up in their most holy faith. Let not the word of God fall to the ground. Whatever the weakness of man in understanding and in delivery, We pray that there would be profit in the hearing of the word today and that thou wilt build thy kingdom and extend it. And if there be those here this morning outside of Christ, they may come under conviction of their sins and seek the Lord while he may be found. So hear prayer, draw near, give to this preacher the power of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you have noticed upon reading the verses that are before us this morning, of the Apostle Paul giving attention to the persecution of the Jews and his perception of them in relation to their retaliation against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when I read this in preparation for this morning, my question that I had, and perhaps you have as well, is what relevance does this have with the context of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with? He has been seeking to encourage the church, rejoicing in what the Lord had accomplished there in that particular city. He has spent some time dealing with those that were attacking him and giving answers to those attacks in the opening 12 verses of chapter 2, and then returns to this joyous fact of their reception of the Word of God in verse 13, which, just to remind you, we'll read, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. There's just this, this, this praise that is emanating from the Apostle, because when you receive the Word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And this draws a contrast to the mind of the apostle. This was not the case for all of those that heard him preach when he went into Thessalonica. There was resistance to the word. There was opposition to the word. And so as he reminds them of what way they received the word of God, he is also reminded of the context in which they received it, that there was tremendous opposition to them. And so there's a number of reasons I think Paul, well, I, I think Paul is giving reason or mentioning this fact of the Jews and the wrath of God upon them that I'll try to bring out for you this morning and, and help you to understand the whole reason for focusing upon this and mentioning what he does here in these verses. First, enduring persecution for the word is an evidence of a genuine work of grace and cause for thanksgiving. They had received the word, those to whom he is writing. And in contrast with that, there are those that had opposed it and they had sought to uh, attack those that were receiving the word. And, and this very persecution that they were experiencing was meant to encourage them that they were genuinely the people of God. That's why he ties them in there with the churches in Judea, the other believers there in Jerusalem and in that region that had received the word of God. They also had been opposed and had suffered tremendous persecution. So as we'll look at in just a moment, they can identify with them, and that's encouraging. Also, enduring persecution for the Word is an experience that correlates with, as we've said already, the first churches that came about in the church, that, that them receiving persecution or enduring persecution was not new. That, in fact, they could, could go back and say, this is the way Christians have been experiencing their reception of the Messiah since the beginning, that as they come and accept Jesus as their Messiah, persecution then follows. And then enduring persecution for the Word is an emblem of the remnant that goes back to the beginning of the people of God. When you're persecuted, what you're experiencing is something that doesn't just go back to the Christians at Jerusalem, but right back into the Old Testament. And so those are some reasons that Paul draws out this language of the Jewish opposition to the church and makes application to that, I think, is very helpful for us, as we shall see here this morning. If we take a step back, one of the evidences of genuine conversion is that after you receive the Word of God, which is what they did in verse 13, you will endure persecution for the Word. This is brought out in the parable of the sower. You're not a stony ground hearer when, Matthew 13, 21, tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the Word, and by and by you're offended. If you're offended by the Word, and you turn away from that Word that you profess to accept because of persecution, then the root of the matter is not there in you. And so the fact that they're enduring 
continuing on, having received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, this is an encouragement. They're continuing on in spite of the opposition. And so that's why Paul's rejoicing at the beginning of verse 13 in their reception of the word. He remembers the context in which they received it. The persecution he made mention of already in verse 6 of chapter 1, he became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So, in receiving the word, this church, this new church, this young church, can receive comfort. And so as we come then to what I've entitled this morning, the Jewish persecution of the church, or Jewish persecution of the church, I want us to see it under three headings. First of all, the encouragement that's in it. Secondly, the error of it. And then the example God makes of it. And this is divided up up into the three verses that we have. The encouragement, of course, is in verse 14. The error is in verse 15. And then the example God makes of it is in verse 16. So let us consider then Jewish persecution of the church and see, first of all, the encouragement. Look at verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. The Gentile believers could identify with other believers that they had never met. The suffering brethren in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea. And this was an encouragement. And what Paul says is, you became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. You became followers of those that are in union with Jesus Christ. Brethren that you've never met, Christians that you don't know, but you become followers of them. Now, when we dealt with this word previously, as we find it, again, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, he uses the same term there, there, ye became followers of us. I spent time in elaborating upon the idea of following good examples. I'm dealing with the scriptural uh, doctrine of seeing the examples that God gives to us, learning from them, and following the pattern that they lay, lay down. It's a very simple, basic concept. Essentially, it comes under the fifth commandment that we are to uh, honor those that are older than us, respect them, and that is not just in regards to our parents, but spiritual oversight and those that God has placed into our lives. And so, if we're in a congregation and we're seeking to be better believers, and particularly I would apply this to the young or those that are relatively new in the faith, you look for those that are going on with God and you try to learn from them. This may be just through observation or maybe through conversation. You can come and sit beside them, ask them questions, you face difficulties, you ask them if they face the similar difficulties, you talk to them. Obviously, as a pastor, I'm one of those that you can come to, but there are many others in the congregation that if you feel confident to go to them, you can go to them, approach them and talk to them and learn from them. That's direct impact. That's learning from them what you see, what's put before you. But obviously, that's not the case in what Paul is saying here. They'd never met these Christians. And yet he says that you're followers of them. You're following the same pattern. The pattern that they're following, of course, is the fact that those brethren, those Christians, were suffering tremendous persecution and difficulty and hardship. Those that were in union with Jesus Christ, wonderful language that you could just spend time opening up in and of itself. The churches of God, what a term. The churches of God, they belong to God. They are His just just to stop and think about that. Whenever the church is under persecution, they belong to God. 
God will not stand aside. God will not just allow it to pass by without any consideration of the suffering of his people. They are the churches of God. They belong to him. He has taken ownership of them. They are his. It's exactly like what the Lord Jesus says whenever he addresses Saul of Tarsus at the time of his conversion, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul's persecution was directed toward the church, but the Lord Jesus takes ownership of it. They are the churches of God. They belong to him. When someone attacks the church, when someone attacks individuals within the church, they are getting against God. They're going against God. And God will not stand by and just let it happen. He will fulfill his purposes in it. But it's a wonderful truth for those of us who are part of his people. They are the churches of God. They belong to God. And Though we may not be large in number, though we may not be huge and significant on a global scale, here on the Haywood Road, or any of our churches really, we're not a big deal. We're not the kind of people that, that others are talking about. We're just simply going through our, our walk with God, our lives before God, seeking to be faithful to Him, yet we belong to Him. As much as any church we're unaware of, churches throughout the world, in places we've never been, in places where if you name those places, we would have a hard time finding them on a map. Some of them even in our own denomination. If I was to say to the average person here this morning, point out Locke in Australia, and you would have a very tough time because you would need a very detailed map even to see where Locke is in Australia. But we have a church there. There are a body of believers right there in that place in South Australia worshiping the Lord. Their Lord's day is already done. They have gone through it, worshiped the Lord already today and praised His name and rejoiced in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. There are many believers we know nothing about, but they all belong to God. They are the churches of God. And He's identifying them specifically with the churches in Judea where persecution began in relation to its attack upon the followers of Jesus Christ. It was here where people began to say, I follow Him. I see Him as the Messiah. I identify Him as the Son of God. I worship Him. I honor Him. I adore Him. I obey Him. I will live for Him. I will die for Him. It was there where it began. And the brethren that Paul is addressing is saying, look, you're like them. You're, you're with them. You're following them. You know nothing about them in specific detail but you became followers of the churches of God. In other words, you, you're following the original pattern of the church. You exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what follows is, at least in the context here, persecution. You suffer. It's the pattern. It's the pattern that believers come to expect. And he goes on to say, For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. And if you go back to Acts 17, which we'll not do this morning, you will see the context of that. It really didn't matter whether you were in Jerusalem or Philippi or Thessalonica. Anyone that professed faith in Christ would suffer. It was basically expected. And indeed, it might, we might say, it doesn't matter if you live in the first century or in the 21st century, Christians should expect suffering. They should expect it. The language of the New Testament is very clear with regard to this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, there Paul is encouraging Timothy. And Timothy's suffering 
he, he's, he's experiencing the difficulties of being a believer in the first century, being a pastor amidst all of the turmoil of that period in time. And Paul says to him, reminds him of his own life and his own experience and applies it to Timothy for the edification of his own soul. Second Timothy 3 verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came on to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. You know all of this, Timothy. And then he says, But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul's not saying that just for the sake of it. He's applying it to Timothy. Timothy, you remember my life, the suffering, the persecution that came out of a life lived this way. My doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, at specific places, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, you were there, you know all about it, you understand, or at least you've heard the story. You've heard all about the history of my experiences, what persecutions I endured, and how the Lord delivered me. But don't forget, Timothy, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you will know that when you get revived, when your spirit gets moved in the direction where it ought to be, and you begin to live for God, and you have refreshed zeal with regard to what the Lord would have you to do, especially in witnessing and praying, and it's then you begin to feel again more pressure and more difficulty living the Christian life. It's strange. You would think the revived Christian, in some ways, would have it easier. And there's a sense in which, of course, they're living right, it's much better, and that's the correct way to live. But the Christian that kind of takes a back seat often finds life to go much easier than the Christian that says, no, I will stand in the front line, and I will do all the Lord calls me to do. And they receive tremendous hardship. As Paul encouraged the churches he saw established, he would tell them, as you're well aware, Acts 14.22, this is basically a summary of his encouragement. <laughs> we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's a summary of his language. As he goes back around the churches, making sure they're going on with God. Churches that under God he had seen established where he had went. And he says, look, don't forget this. This aspect of suffering is very real. And when he, write, when he wrote to those at Philippi, in Philippians 1.29, He says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now we like the first part. It has been given, gifted, miraculously, by the Holy Spirit, appointed by God, given to believe in Christ, the miracle of sovereign election and sovereign free grace. It comes to your hearts, but also what comes with that is the appointment to suffer for His sake. And so Peter writes, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing 
that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The same afflictions. The same afflictions, having the devil against them, seeking to devour them, seeking to destroy them, seeking to attack them, seeking to bring them down by whatever means he can utilize. The devil is there pouring out his indignation against the church, and this is right across the globe. Every Christian. There is an encouragement that affirms our faith in knowing that what we experience in regards to suffering is something that other believers experience. When I suffer and I know that this is exactly what every Christian goes through, that every Christian suffers, that God appoints suffering, uses suffering for every one of His children, that the general message of the New Testament, as well as the Old, but specifically in the New, is telling everyone who will exercise faith in Christ, you're going to get a hard time. There's a comfort in knowing that we're not alone. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 11. Pay attention to these verses. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that we heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. John here enters into the language that we have heard already from Paul and Peter, that we are not to be surprised when we are experiencing suffering for the cause of Christ. And the example he gives is, is a tremendous one. That we're to not be like Cain, we're to love one another, not be like Cain, who was of that wicked one, he was of the devil, slew his brother. Why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now go back to the scene. Abel is bringing his offering, rejoicing in acceptance which is found upon shed blood. Acceptance that is experienced by the free grace of God because he well knew that God has said to his parents, the day you eat of that fruit you will die. And instead God came in mercy to his parents and showed kindness, condescending, seeking for Adam. Adam, where are you? And communicated a message of grace, of mercy, that the judgment that he ought to deserve really is going to be poured out upon the one who had enticed and led them astray. The wrath of God is going to be more fully meted out upon the instigator of it all, but those who were duped, those who fell and succumbed to his enticement, God comes in mercy to them. He no doubt would have it accounted to him how God came and took away their, their phony attempt to cover themselves with fig leaves 
and took an animal and killed that animal, shed its blood, gave them a, a cloak of skins, and pointed to the suffering, pointed to the substitute, and indicated very clearly that the way of acceptance is by substitution. The blood of another will be shed, and upon that you will find acceptance with me. It's all grace. And what's Adam's response to a message of grace? What's his response? He gives his wife a name, Eve. She's the mother of all living. It's a name indicating life. Life, because the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. That life will come by God giving a gift, even through the seed of the woman, that will deal a death blow to death itself and set men free, all of grace. And Abel comes and brings his offering, entering into that spirit of worship where it's not of his works, nothing to do with him. It's a message of free grace. It's God's work. It's what God has done. It's an indication of what God will yet do. And his brother, his brother enters into the pride of his own works, his own accomplishments, what he can do. And his anger rises up as he recognizes the fact that God accepts his brother because his brother has no reliance upon his own works. And his anger really is toward the God, for God rejected Cain's best efforts. God says, your best effort is not enough, Cain. That's the whole point. I cannot accept this. It's not sufficient. And instead of repenting and turning to the means of acceptance that he well knew. His pride rises up in anger, and while he cannot kill God, he killed the very one who testifies of that grace, who represents that grace. And right there, you see then, John says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The world has a problem with the grace of the gospel. The world is opposed to the cross is opposed to the blood, is opposed to acceptance with God through no merit of her own. The world despises that. Right in the beginning you have this animosity toward the message of the gospel, man finding acceptance upon the ground of the substitute, even Jesus Christ the righteous. The world opposes that. And what, if we go back, those were experiencing in Thessalonica, which was exactly what had been experienced in Jerusalem and the region of Judea, they were experiencing the same thing for the same cause. They hated the gospel. They were opposed to this way of salvation. And these Jews were the key instigators in despising it, even though unto them were committed the oracles of God. And they had all the covenants and the promises and everything that Paul lists at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. All these privileges were despised by them. As you walk as a Christian, trusting entirely in the work of Jesus Christ, the world hates it. They hate the God who has provided it. They hate His call to repent and believe as the only way of acceptance. They hate it. They despise it. And they hate you because every time they see you, you remind them of the only way they can be reconciled to God. Marvel not if the world hate you. So there's an encouragement here in verse 14 when we realize that what we're experiencing 
is the same thing that others experience. Ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. They are in union with Christ. They belong to God. And you're following them for, because, here's how you're following them, ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. You have suffered as well. That brings us then to the error of it. The Jewish persecution, the error of it is brought out in verse 15. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. The Jewish persecution of Christians is inevitable in light of the three facts that Paul presents. First, they killed Jesus. Who both killed the Lord Jesus. Consistently through the Gospels, you will find that it is the Jewish leaders that take counsel how they might destroy Jesus Christ. It's constantly them. Repeated through the Gospels, all the Gospels, the reminder, they took counsel together how they might destroy Him, how they might kill Him, how they might put Him to death. Repeatedly. And there's no doubting where the apostles laid the blame. They themselves being Jews. You go through the book of Acts, you'll see it very clearly. I'll read these verses to you. Just take you through some of these verses to see the very clear blame that is laid at the feet of the Jews for what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, Acts 2, 36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says again in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his Son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead. Acts 4, verse 10, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Peter and the apostles that were with him in Acts 5, verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. And Stephen, when he preaches a sermon in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, it reads, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Paul says, who both killed the Lord Jesus? They killed the Lord Jesus. Now we could go back and look at the purpose of God in it all. We could deal with all of that. I'm not going to deal with that this morning. And show that God had predestined and had appointed all of this to unfold for the salvation of all of his elect. But with regard to the blame as to why Jesus Christ ended up on the cross looking at it humanly, the Bible doesn't mince its words. It doesn't avoid the fact that there is there's culpability here that is laid at the feet of the Jews. They killed the Lord Jesus. They not only killed Jesus... They killed the prophets. I read to you just a moment ago what Stephen said. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? 
Israel had a long history in persecuting their prophets. In fact, it goes back even before Israel was a nation. We just mentioned a moment ago about Abel. Abel was a prophet. We know that Abel was a prophet. The Lord Jesus called him a prophet in Luke chapter 11, verse 50 and 51. When he's, he's talking about the blame being put upon the Jewish nations, he says it's from Abel. And he's referring to prophets, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel onto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Jesus places Abel as a martyred prophet. The first martyred prophet. The first one to lay down his life. And he's saying this nation of Israel is going to experience the wrath of God, the judgment of God for the accumulated sins of killing my prophets. Elijah knew it as well. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, he says himself, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. They've killed the rest of the prophets. They seek to kill me as well. Elijah says, this is the pattern. This is the pattern. They tear down the altars. They oppose God. They lift up their false idolatry. And they endeavor to kill the messengers of God. Jeremiah. God speaks through him. In Jeremiah 2 verse 30. Saying, your own sword hath devoured your prophets. Like a destroying lion. And as the history of Israel is rehearsed in Nehemiah chapter 9. It's really in the form of a prayer. It says in Verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. And so Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 33, He says it like this, It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. That is the pattern of Jerusalem to kill their prophets. In saying that, he is saying, essentially, this is what must happen to me. They have slain their, their, the other prophets that God has sent. One by one, they have suffered, they've experienced tremendous hardship, sometimes to the point of death, it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Therefore, <laughs> the implication is, as a prophet, the prophet, the one Moses spoke of, you can anticipate, Jerusalem will kill me also. He goes on in the next verse and cries, of course, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee. As an aside, it's hardly surprising, though I'm not sure I fully agree, but it's hardly surprising that some men hold the opposition that the city of Babylon referred to in Revelation 18 is apostate Jerusalem. If it is not, it certainly bears many similar marks. It's in Revelation 18.24 we read, In her was found the blood of prophets. Apostate Jerusalem. It's Babylon there. 
But certainly Jerusalem is identified as continually killing their prophets, the men that God sends to them. And then they persecute the apostles as well, because Paul says they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. If you have a margin, it may show to you that chased us out. The idea of persecution is being chased out or driven out. The only other reference in which this word persecuted is used in the New Testament is Luke eleven forty nine, where Jesus says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay, and here's the word, persecute. It will drive them out. They will oppose them. I will refrain from going through the book of Acts and showing to you the Jewish persecution of the apostles. You'll see it very plainly for yourself with any reading trying to identify it. But the majority of their suffering was at the hand of the Jews. Paul says in his list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. It was constantly under their opposition, their hatred, their animosity, their hostility. And so he says, And they please not God, and are contrary to all men. They please not God. Why? Well, Romans 8, 8, They that are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't please God. Of course, they thought they were pleasing God. This is what Jesus warned them about in John chapter 16, verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. They think they're serving God in doing this. But they please not God. Understatement, of course. God is against them, as he will unfold in the next verse. They please not God and are contrary to all men. Why, why is it? Why are, they, why are they doing all of this? Basically, they oppose anyone who brings the word of God. Jesus came and brought them the word. He was the word incarnate itself. The prophets came and brought the word. The apostles brought the word. It's their opposition to God's word. That's the point. They are anyone who brings the word of God, who comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, here's the mind of God, here's what God says to your soul, they despise with such utter hatred. It will drive them even to death if they have the opportunity. Of course, the Lord Jesus dealt with this in one of his parables, didn't he? Flip over to Matthew 21, or listen to me as I read it to you. Matthew 21, verse 33 This just paints the whole scene. This is the history of Israel and prophetic concerning their Messiah as well. Matthew 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them a son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And they say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The Lord paints the scene for us. Israel had had God's servants time after time, generation after generation, century after century. God sent them men. Finally, the Son of God himself comes and they treat him most heinously. And by their own lips, they declare what ought to happen, that the vineyard should be given to other husbandmen who will render him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 41. And Jesus confirms this. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. This will happen. Now, when you go back to our passage, the Apostle Paul brings this out. The fact that they killed the Lord Jesus, their own prophets, the apostles, they persecuted, they pleased not God and are contrary to all men. That sense of being contrary to all men is their opposition to anyone who would receive exactly what they say ought to happen. That the the ones who will actually take the responsibility and render the fruits that they ought do exactly what God has said they should do. That as God turns to them, they oppose them ever receiving those benefits. They are contrary to the reception of of the gospel, contrary to anyone receiving the gospel. And so as the word of God would spread and go through city after city and nation after nation and Gentiles would be gathered in, they were opposed to that. And so the end of verse 15 flows into verse 16, which deals with our final point, the example God makes of it. The example God makes of this, of the Jews and their persecution of the church forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their wrath or fill up their sins always for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. This is an awful text in many ways. The Jews totally opposing the gospel going forward and the result of that adding to all the rest of their sins Note with me first, God lets them multiply their sins. He lets them multiply their sins to fill up their sins always. The sense of the text is that they're filling up a vessel. A vessel full of sin. And it's going to continue to be filled up until it's completely full. And when it's completely full, then something's going to happen. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them. Again, the language of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23 
verses 31 and 32 says, Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, he's speaking to the religious leaders, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Jesus essentially says, you're the children of those that killed the prophets. Fill it on up. Fill it on up. Take your Messiah and put him to death. This language of filling up a vessel is not new in the Word of God. You remember whenever God promised Abraham the land in Genesis chapter 15. The promised land. And in that promise, he reveals to him the fact that there's going to be a period where they're going to be removed from the land. They're going to spend time in slavery, subject there for 400 years until they come back into the land that was promised to them for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis 15 verse 16. The iniquity of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the nations of that region, it's not yet full. So I'm going to have to take you away for four centuries. They're going to continue on in their path of rebellion and sin. Then you're going to come in, your posterity will come in, and execute the judgment they deserve for their sin. Which was what Joshua was doing under God. It took multiple generations for the Amorites to come to the point of experiencing God's wrath in the way that they did. And the Jews were the same. Of course, them forbidding the Gentiles to hear the gospel was not a new sin. In Matthew 23, again, Jesus says, verse 13, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They've always had this pattern. They won't go in themselves, and anyone who seems to indicate their desire to go in, they oppose. They're shutting up heaven against men. But it was exercised in a way in the first century that was multiplied to a greater degree than they ever had before. The scale of it had never been done in the way that it had been done at this time, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Forbidding it. Opposing. Trying to stop. Trying to hinder. As it was in this particular city, they raised up certain men, certain lewd fellows after the, of a baser sort, trying to disrupt the city so that the apostles would have no other decision to make other than to get out of the city and run for their lives to try and prevent men hearing the gospel. No shame whatsoever. And after having killed their prophets and their Messiah, and now they're shutting out the Gentiles, and you keep in context all the, all the prophecies, everything that was said about, about the Messiah coming and being a light to the Gentiles, they're trying to, they're trying to put a, a sheet over, trying to darken, trying to put out that light to the Gentiles. As Christ comes not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The Jews are on a concerted effort to try and hide the light of the gospel. Put a shroud over the light of the world. And prevent other nations from coming in and accepting what they rejected. And this is the final, this is the final topping up of the vessel. Until the wrath of God will be poured upon them to the uttermost. So God lets them multiply their sins. And then God will bring upon them His wrath. 
for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The tense indicates it's something already upon them. No doubt it includes reference to A.D. 70 and Roman armies coming in and destroying Jerusalem utterly. It also no doubt can be pointing to the final judgment which is to come as well. But I think as he presents it already coming upon them, that present judgment was that judgment evident by their unbelief. There was already a measure of judgment that had come upon them in the fact they would not believe their very own Messiah. Remember, unbelief is the great sin that damns the soul utterly and completely. John 3.36, Jesus says, He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's hanging over your head because you won't believe in the Son. The wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. What awful language this is. So we read these verses and we wonder, what is our response? What are we to learn? I think first and foremost we should keep in mind that Paul's comments here are about their sin and not their ethnicity. Just in case there would be any anti-Jewish sentiment that would arise in your heart from this language that would cause you to have a particular opposition to this people group, that is not Paul's point. Paul's point is with reference to those that reject the gospel, even those that had the greatest privileges of all. He preached to the Jew first. Christ had commanded that the gospel should be preached first in Jerusalem. Some of the greatest reaping times had occurred among the Jews. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls. Thereafter, another 5,000. The, the, the largest church was in Jerusalem. So we should not think against them in a wrong way. But what we have here is a very humbling thing. Turn with me to Romans 11. And we'll close with this. Because the passage we have read brings a tremendous warning to us. Though it's not Paul's emphasis right there at that point. It is his emphasis in Romans chapter 11. Or at least it's some of the application he draws out in Romans 11. There's no question of Paul's love for his own countrymen. He takes the position of Moses when he says, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my kinsmen according to the flesh. That he had learned from Moses. So there's no doubt as to his love for them. But the reality is what he has presented in the verse, verses that we've looked at this morning. But nevertheless, look from verse 15 we'll read in Romans 11. For if the casting away of them, this is Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. 
And if the root be holy, so are the branches. If you don't get everything here, it's okay. I trust you'll understand our application very plainly as we close. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. So some have been cut off to this olive tree. Gentiles have been brought in. The temptation may be to boast against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Thou standest by faith. His point here is to show that God didn't just turn against Israel for the sake of turning against them. It's not like he just had some animosity against Israel. The reason for them being cut off is because they wouldn't believe. And the reason for the Gentiles that he is addressing at this point for being brought in is because of faith. That's the only reason. And faith is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so his point is this, don't dare brag. Do not dare brag, thinking they were cut off so we might be brought in. God's finished with them. He's now turned his attention to us. It's only the difference is faith or the lack thereof. Not nationality. Not where you were born. So he says, be not high-minded, but fear, verse 20. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity. But toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Its point is this. The fullness of the Gentiles must come in. All the elect Gentiles must come in. And all Israel, different understandings of that, but we can say at least this. The elect of Israel will be brought in and be saved. God intends it to occur. And there ought to be therefore an expectation of a time where they will be brought in again to some measure that is distinct and notable in contrast with centuries of unbelief. And what is our response? Skip on down. I think Paul sums it up well. Verse 33, Oh, the depth 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that is our response to these verses. They are guilty of this abomination of killing the Lord Jesus, their own prophets over centuries, persecuting the apostles and trying to close up heaven to the Gentiles. It's awful. There could be no greater list of crimes condensed in such a fashion like this. It's awful. And the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. These people are under continual judgment. The wrath of God has been poured out upon them to such a degree. When you look at AD 70 and some of the other things that have occurred, it all comes down to this. They were committed to them, the truth and responsibility to bear that truth to the nations. And they despise it to the damnation of their own souls and try to close it up to other nations as well. And there go I, but for the grace of God. Let us therefore have the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Maybe there's some here this morning and you don't know the time of God's visitation upon your soul. The wrath of God will come upon you to the uttermost because really what difference is there between many that are assembled here in this house this morning and the Jews? Have you not had the word of God? Have you not had every privilege? Has God not communicated to you such truth to your heart continually, repeatedly, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you just turn a blind eye to it? You reject it, you oppose it, you will not embrace it, and you have no time for it. In fact, you shut up heaven to others because by pursuing a life without Christ, you're telling others, you're encouraging others in a same path. And you will stand before God in the day of judgment, guilty of many of the same sins. May God have mercy. Let's bow together in prayer. here this morning and you need help spiritually guidance, counsel even just someone to pray with you please feel free to come and speak to me after this service these are solemn things I want you to imagine just for a moment what it's like be under such wrath, such judgment that you can't avoid it. 
There is a time we know not when, a place we know not where, that seals the destiny of man for glory or despair. Are you in Christ? Are you saved? Or does the wrath of God still abide upon you? Lord, we pray, please have mercy upon any soul here this morning, young or old, familiar or very new to the things that we have spoken this morning. Have mercy upon them, we pray. Open blinded eyes. Take away stony hearts. Deal in kindness to those that are yet in a condition of sin. We pray, O oh God, for their hard hearts to be melted. Lord, we see some faces this morning and we wonder just, just what it will take to see a genuine work and evidence of a soft heart toward the gospel. Have mercy. Have mercy this day. Keep us, Lord, from pride. And give us a heart for the unbelieving Jew. We pray that thou wilt help us to preach to them. Even those that are in our very neighborhood. Those that worship a stone's throw away from here. Who know not the Lord Jesus. God, we pray that thou wilt have mercy on them. Hear prayer this day. Bless our fellowship before we go home. And give us expectation of thy blessing as we return here this evening. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.